0: Hello there, welcome to another episode of Turkey Book Talk. Thanks for joining, I'm William Armstrong speaking to you from here in Istanbul. In this podcast we hear from authors of newly released books on Turkey and the region. You can give our Facebook page a like and or follow the Twitter account at Turkey Book Talk. There are show notes and links at armstrongwilliam.wordpress.com and please do rate or review the podcast wherever you listen to it, which helps more people find it. Do consider signing up to become a Turkey Book Talk member for exclusive extras and to help us keep going. Joining up as a signed up member gets you transcripts in both English and Turkish of every interview published on Turkey Book Talk via email as soon as the episode is published. You also get transcripts of the entire Turkey Book Talk archive which so far amounts to very nearly 100 conversations and which includes a number of extra interviews not previously published on the podcast. Members also get access to an exclusive discount deal, a whopping 35% off the cover price of books published in IB Taurus's extensive Turkey and Ottoman history category. IB Taurus, which is part of the Blooms Publishing House has well over 400 books in its Turkey and Ottoman history series, including both academic and general interest titles. Turkey Book Talk members receive a special code for a 35% discount on books in that series, including physical books, pre-orders and e-books. Finally, members also receive an archive of 231 book reviews written by myself, covering Turkish and international fiction and poetry, history, politics, journalism, the Middle East and Europe. That archive was written over the course of five years and used to be available online, but nowadays a Turkey Book Talk membership is the only way to access it. So to become a member, all you have to do is pledge a minimum of $3 per episode via Turkey Book Talk's official Patreon account. New episodes go out every two weeks, so the monthly membership price is no more than $6, of course if you're feeling particularly generous and want to pledge more then you'll certainly be more than welcome but so long as you pledge three dollars or above per episode membership is entirely at your own discretion members only get charged when a new episode is published so there are no prior commitments or strings attached you'll be free to sign off whenever you want but now let's get on with our latest episode. In it, we hear from Emre Ershan. He's an associate professor at Marmara University's Department of Political Science and International Relations. He's also the co editor, along with Sechkim Kustem, of Turkey's Pivot to Eurasia, which is a stimulating collection of articles on that subject, recently published by Routledge. The book looks at the various angles of Turkey's recent cozying up to Russia, China, and various other Eurasian states. Amid the deterioration in its relations with traditional Western Western Allies, including the United States. We discuss some of the deeper ideological and emotional currents behind all this a bit later, but there are more concrete developments going on in this area as we speak. Just last month, Turkey started receiving shipments of S-400 air defence missiles from Russia, a purchase that is expected to have major consequences, both symbolic and concrete. So I started by asking Emre Ershan about that purchase and whether he was surprised that Turkey ultimately went through with it.
1: Well, I think, I mean, when the S-400 issue first came out, uh, it was a few years ago, and I really didn't think the Turkish government would buy it, because before that, we also had another example where Turkey, at the very last minute, decided not to buy the Chinese missiles, because NATO uh, was not happy about it. So many people, I think, assumed that the same would happen again. But we need to keep in mind that, especially after July 2016, when we had this attempted coup in Turkey, a lot of things have changed. And I think the perception of the Turkish leaders about the European Union and the United States have also radically changed with uh, that development in July 2015. And uh, I think uh, many people, including the ones in the government, the leadership of Turkey, definitely, and also, uh, I think the public as well, they they really feel uh, that Turkey's future is not actually lying anymore with the West. I mean, maybe back in 1950s, when Turkey became a member of NATO, that decision for many people really maximized. a lot, but I think especially if you take all these developments together with the domestic dynamics after 2016, there is really a genuine disappointment with uh, Turkey's relations with the Western countries, Uh, not only the United States, but also the European Union. And there are reasons for that, of course. I mean, we are talking about regional issues, the global developments, financial problems, and etc. Especially this is interesting because in the 2000s, there have been a lot of instances where many people claimed there were some signs of a shift of axis and Turkish foreign policy. In the beginning of the 2000s, in, after the United States invasion of Iraq, for example, many people thought Turkey is uh, shifting its axis. And later on, that debate resurfaced over and over again. But this time, I think, especially in these last three years, it's becoming more and more meaningful. And I think the S-400s, on their own, of course, they are quite important weapon systems, and I agree with that. But I think their political significance has, been, has become much more important than their technical Significance and Russia is aware of that, and of course for Russia this is extremely important because this is the first NATO member who purchases these missiles, and I think that's why they deliberately wanted to sell these missiles to Turkey. They they really like the idea of creating this huge rift inside the NATO. So I think when it first appeared that Turkey was willing to buy these systems, nobody gave them a chance, but now uh, it becomes clear that Turkey is actually going forward with it and. Uh, I don't think it's possible for the Turkish government to take a step back because uh, they also are are playing to the nationalist sentiments in the country. So uh, now we have time until April 2020, and I think that is when it is expected that these systems will be activated. And there will definitely be some negotiation uh, going on with the United States in that regard. This is how I see it. During that time period, the direction of those negotiations will be very important in terms of understanding the real nature of Turkey's relationship with the Western countries, especially with Washington.
0: There's a few things uh, in the answer that we can unpack uh, a bit later on. One thing that you mention in it is the coup attempt in 2016. And this is often mentioned as being really significant in bringing Turkey and Russia together, driving a wedge between Turkey and the US even further. And uh, it's often forgotten. But, um, you know, that uh, coup attempt occurred at a time just just after Turkey-Russia relations had really suffered because of the shooting down of the Russian jet by Turkey on the border with Syria Mm -hmm. uh, in November 2015. So the coup attempt happened two, uh, a bit over half a year after that, and really it was the kind of catalyst in a way for this the rapprochement between Turkey and Russia. Putin really seized the moment to repair ties with Erdogan, and helped sort of deepen suspicion between Turkey and the US. Just unpack it a bit. How did that happen? You know, why was the coup attempt such a significant moment really in uh, repairing Turkey's relations with Russia?
1: Yeah, I mean, just as you mentioned, as far as I remember, the letter of regrets from President Erdogan to President Putin to fix the relations, uh, that that happened in June uh, 2016. And only two months later, we had the coup attempt. So the Russian-Turkish relations were already on track. And of course, there were reasons for the Turkish government to try to reach out to Russia. Because at the time, because of uh, this uh, crisis with Russia, Turkey was completely excluded from Syria, and Russia activated its own S-400. Uh, systems in Syria. And because of that, Turkey was, I mean, it was impossible for Turkey to take any military measures against the YPG, the PKK, or any other uh, organization it it was fighting with at the time. So it was actually out of necessity for Turkey to correct the relationship with Russia. Uh, In in June 2016, uh, Erdogan sent this letter of regret uh, to Putin. And gradually, the relations started to get better between Turkey and Russia. And another thing that I agree with you is uh, definitely President Putin, actually wanted to seize the moment because in August 2016 after the coup attempt, uh, uh, sorry uh, the the July 15th coup, coup attempt Turkey actually thought that its Western allies, the European Union and the United States would be firmly against the coup plotters but it didn't happen and it was very interesting that it was actually Putin and the leader of Iran who called Erdogan to for, for declaring their support and I think it really came at a very important time for Erdogan and the Turkish government at the time, so it also added a psychological aspect to the Turkish-Russian rapprochement that was happening at the time. And just keep in mind that in August 2016, Turkey also launched its Operation Euphrates Shield, the first cross-border military operation in Syria with the consent of Russia and Iran. So when you bring all these regional and domestic developments, the things that are going on uh, in Syria at the time, I think it's really the pieces came together for the first time. uh, And that's how the Turkish-Russian rapprochement started. But I I do believe one of the main Reasons for that is because since 2015, when Russia showed the world that it was really quite serious about helping Assad regime militarily, I think Turkey gradually started to see that it was Russia which was actually trying to come up with a solution in Syria rather than the United States. Especially if you take a look at uh, uh, the Obama administration's policies uh, and their reluctant stance, and then the Trump administration's confused stance regarding Syria, I think at the time the Turkish government actually. Made some kind of a calculation, and Russia fits the theme perfectly, especially if you compare it with the United States. And so, I don't think it's only the coup attempts that facilitated this Turkish-Russian rapprochement, but there were already elements of that rapprochement. And with the coup attempts, once uh, the Turkish government understood that they would not be getting the required, you know, support from Washington and Brussels, that really turned into some kind of a genuine rapprochement. And I think President Erdogan, in that regard, sincerely thinks uh, President. Putin is on his side, and he made a lot of speeches about this. So this personal relationship dynamic is is also quite important to understand in that regard. I don't think he really has such a relationship with any other leaders, especially in Europe uh, or North America. And this is, I think, quite important to understand how he feels, his emotions and his his inner uh, psyche, I think.
0: It's a paradox really, because Turkey and Russia have been throughout the Syrian civil war on opposite sides supporting different groups, obviously Russia supporting the, the al-Assad and Turkey supporting various op- rebel groups in the opposition. But despite that fact, there's a reality that Ankara and Moscow have actually got closer throughout that war, which is when you step back and think about it, very curious indeed. I mean, how do you read that? Should we be surprised by that or?
1: Well, again, I mean, if you just take a look at this whole timeline of the incidents in Syria, it started in 2011. And when it first started, I don't think anybody was prepared for such consequences. And I think it's the same for Turkey, for Russia, for the United States. I mean, nobody really uh, could come up with a consistent policy up until 2015 or 16, maybe. And we are talking about Russia right now, maybe because it's the only actor which really had some kind of, you know, consistent policy towards Syria, because they supported Assad from day one, like Iran. So especially starting with 2015, I mean, before that, uh, for Turkey, the main threat in Syria was always Assad. Turkey wanted Assad to go, like the United States. And they really worked well up until that point. But starting with 2015, also because of the impact of the Russian intervention in Syria, I think the priorities of Turkey and the United States started to change radically. And for Turkey, the YPG became the number one threat because of the PKK connection. Whereas for the United States, YPG was uh, a very useful proxy actor. And even today, Russia and Turkey have a lot of differences in Syria. This the strategic rapprochement that is going on between Turkey and Russia does not mean that everything's okay between them. And we see this in the Astana talks or when President Putin and Erdogan meet. They have a lot of differences. But still, I think for Turkey, Russia seems to be a much more suitable partner because of this YPG thing. Russia's relations with the YPG have always been quite tactical and practical. Yes, they have relations with the YPG in some regions in Syria, but for Turkey now, the YPG is the existential threat. And that was not the case before 2015. Before 2015, it was all about getting rid of the Assad regime. And the main problem between Turkey, Russia and Iran at the time was uh, Turkey's stance about Assad. Now, I mean, of course, I mean, one might argue that uh, Turkey is still against Assad, but I think they they probably think this can be solved in time or once uh, the situation is under control in Syria, they think they can make some kind of an agreement with Russia and Iran regarding Assad's future. But uh, currently, it's definitely the YPG and the United States rapprochement with the YPG, which actually created this change in Turkey's uh, foreign policy regarding Syria. And I think that's how Russia came into the picture, starting from 2015 and 2016.
0: Now we've spoken very specifically there I want to take a bit of a wider angle now A more sort of historical look At a few issues here And as I was reading the book I I kept thinking again and again about um, The really key importance of the Cold War really And bringing Turkey and the US together In a sense a lot of people now say That without the Cold War being that sort of glue Holding Turkey and the US together There really isn't a strategic reason For them to be together And over the three decades since uh, The end of the Cold War It's almost inevitable that um, there'll be this sort of decoupling between the two sides and Turkey will sort of explore uh, relations with various other partners, including Russia. Just talk about that, you know, the importance of the Cold War and the importance of the end of the Cold War in reshaping Turkey's sort of strategic perspective, I suppose.
1: Well, I mean, uh, it didn't really immediately happen. I mean, when the Cold War ended, especially in the 1990s, we need to remember that the uh, Turkish-United States relations were still defined as strategic partnership by many people, including President Bill Clinton. He came to Turkey in 1999, right after this uh, massive earthquake that happened in uh, uh, the Marmara region of Turkey. And he also said, uh, we are strategic partners. So in 1999, so this is not really that far away. But I think what's really changed Turkey's perception about Western countries in general, and we are also talking about this in the introductory part of the book, is I think this financial crisis that happened in 2007 and 2008. Before that, if you just take a look at Turkey's uh, strategic partnership with not only the United States, but also NATO, Turkey was a very loyal partner of both the United States and NATO. It was actually leading many NATO missions all around the world, and they were quite happy about it. What really changed the Turkish perception about the West probably came right after after, uh, the global financial crisis, both because uh, of how it affected the Western countries financially, but also because Turkey was started to be seen as one of the rising powers. There are many articles that you would find uh, that are written at that time that defined uh, Turkey as a rising power, a new power, a rising tiger or whatever. And I think because Turkey was also becoming more and more self-confident in the 2000s, and this is also in parallel with its uh, economic performance, I think, uh, it started to see see itself as more and more independent from the Western countries. So we had that element starting with the 2000s, with the Justice and Development Party years. In the 1990s, more or less, the Turkish foreign policy was actually in conformity with the Western countries. But of course, the thing that brought Turkey together with the Western countries was its membership in NATO. That's why NATO is such an important organization for Turkey, because without NATO, Turkey cannot find its place in the Western security uh, architecture. So NATO membership has always been very important. And I think the way NATO also transformed is also quite important for Turkey. I mean, yes, nowadays, many people question Turkey's uh, membership in NATO. But we should also keep in mind that NATO is not the same NATO of the 1950s. Or the Cold War NATO has changed a lot. And NATO is now dealing with a lot of -of out-of-area operations in many parts of the world. And they need Turkey as a significant military partner. So in that regard, I think Turkey is strategically with the Western West are still very important, especially with for NATO. Turkey is a very significant country, and you can also find uh, the hints of this uh, when you listen to uh, the speeches of the NATO Secretary General, for example. He always uh, is quite. I mean, his stance towards Turkey is always much softer than uh, compared with the United States uh, leaders or policymakers. So, in that regard, I think the strategic links are still there. They have transformed a lot, but uh, I think they need to find a rationale to define redefine this. Relationship And of course, this is a painful process because the United States has also changed so much, especially in the last few years. And this global financial crisis, and especially what's happened after that in world politics in Europe, in the United States, definitely changed the perceptions of how the Turkish leaders view their links or alliance ties with uh, the Western countries. This is how I see it.
0: There's also the issue of public opinion. Just looking at the Kadir Has annual sort of uh, survey of Turkish public opinion, and it really does throw up some quite uh, remarkable numbers. Uh, The most recent ones said that 81% of Turkish citizens think the U.S. poses a threat to Turkey, uh, and that's gone up compared to previous years, but it's always very high. I mean, looking at that, you would also perhaps say it's almost inevitable that Turkey would turn away and look for other alternatives. I mean, how important is public opinion in sort of setting the course of these broader diplomatic relations
1: Well, I mean, I do believe there has been a change in the public perceptions regarding the relations with the West after uh, the July 15 coup attempt in 2016. That is a fact. But at the same time, I think we need to be careful about the public polls uh, because they can change so uh, rapidly. I mean, uh, I remember the time, and you also mentioned that, uh, the time when the Turkish forces shot down the Russian fighter jet. And immediately the perception uh, about Russia in the Turkish opinion polls were changed in a very negative direction. And the same happened in Russia as well. I mean, I remember the Russian opinion polls at the time about Turkey and for many Russian people, Turkey was a major threat that uh, had to be, uh, you know, dealt with like the United States or Ukraine. So these public opinion polls definitely can change and especially considering the situation in the Turkish media now, it's it's, uh, mainly controlled by the government. It's not really that surprising to see that the public perception about the uh, United States is so negative. But of course, uh, apart from the coup attempt and its implications, We also need to remember that for Turkey, the strategic relations between the United States and the YPG are really a big problem because for many people, the YPG is linked with the PKK, so they think that uh, the United States, Turkey's NATO ally, is actually supporting a terrorist organization that is threatening uh, the Turkish interest. So uh, it's not really surprising to see that. Uh, But on the other hand, I'm not really sure whether this positive feeling about Russia can be maintained or sustained uh, in the long term because. History is always a big problem in Turkish-Russian relations, because we're talking about a history of endless wars, enmity, conflict, and etc. If you just take a look at the 18th and 19th century in Ottoman-Russian relations. So uh, the times when Turkey and Russia enjoyed very good relations are quite limited. So we don't really know if this uh, new positive atmosphere in Turkish-Russian relations and how the public perceives it is sustainable. And one other thing, for example, and it's really, really very timely that we're making this interview, because just yesterday, Russia uh, decided to lift the ban uh, on uh, the special passports uh, holders for uh, entering Russia. And it's very strange because, you know, back in 2011, actually uh, all the Turkish citizens had the chance to enter Russia with normal passports. Now the special passports are given to only special people. So even there, Russia really did not want to make this privilege to the Turkish side, which is quite telling, in my opinion, because, you know, we're talking about this, you know, strategic rapprochement or the new honeymoon in Turkish-Russian relations. But when it comes to facts, I don't think the two countries really trust each other uh, so much yet. I mean, this might be uh, reflected in the public perception in the upcoming years, because in the Kadir House survey each year, it's very interesting that uh, the Turkish people think that uh, no country, maybe apart from Azerbaijan, can be regarded as a strategic partner. Russia is not a strategic partner for the Turkish people yet. And uh, I think we will need a few years at least to see whether the positive feelings about Russia will really uh, be maintained in the long term. Uh, But yes, definitely this uh, negative feelings about America, about Israel and about European Union are becoming more and more visible in uh, the public answers. And this might be a problem, especially in the upcoming years, because we're talking about a country which also wants to become an EU member, although it's only on paper right now, because of all the problems between the Turkish government and the EU. uh, We still have, uh, this, you know, special relationship between Turkey and the EU, and I think this type of, you know, uh, psychology in the Turkish public doesn't really help uh, the improvement of Turkish EU
0: relations. A few months ago, we published uh, an episode with uh, Selim Koru. He's an analyst at uh, TEPAV. Uh, and mm-hmm. he's written quite a lot about Turkey's strategic direction and its relations with Russia. And in that episode, uh, he was talking about the kind of being deeper roots, really, deeper ideological roots be- uh, behind Turkey's shift of axis. Uh, so it's not just this sort of narrow, dry, classic understanding of national interest. He basically argues that Turkey developing ties with Russia fits into a kind of nationalist worldview that's, you know, resentful of the West out of a sense of national pride and national sort of self. Fulfillment and that sort of chimes well with the kind of thinking in Moscow as well. You know, there's, there's a kind of shared emotional state, really, that he talks about as being one of the big drivers behind this rapprochement. Mm-hmm. And that tendency has been building actually for years, really. I mean, what do you make of that kind of argument, that sort of more almost uh, emotional, sort of uh, ideological argument to this whole debate?
1: Yeah, I mean, my chapter actually on, uh, in the book is uh, devoted to this subject. It's called Eurasianism. I mean, I was thinking about this ideological dimension in Turkish-Russian relations, and I think when you call it Eurasianism, it is really a very vague concept. I mean, we need to uh, first of all see what that means for Russia and what that means for Turkey. For Russia, definitely, the idea of Eurasianism is creating a new Russian uh, super empire in in the Eurasian continent. But for Turkey, I don't think that. That is what uh, the Eurasianist ideology in Turkey uh, means. So uh, we need to be very careful about making that distinction. And I really actually uh, try to explain that the differences between the Turkish and Russian versions of Eurasianism in my own chapter in the book. But definitely, there are people who seem to be to have become much more influential on President Erdogan and the government nowadays, who think that one way to continue in the future is to align with countries like Russia, China, Iran, India, and etc. But again, we need to be very careful there. The what, the real reason why this has become so popular in for the Turkish media and for the Turkish government, government, obviously, is because these countries are regarded as the rising powers after 2007 and 2008, especially because of the global financial crisis and how it affected the West. So this rise of the East or rise of Asia theme also seems to have become very important in terms of shaping the understanding of the Turkish leaders and, how they see their relations with the Asian countries. And only a few few days ago, I think, the Turkish government announced a new strategic initiative that was called Asia Anew, or something like that, which also is centered on China. In the book, uh, we have uh, specific chapters about China, and when you read that, you will immediately see the relations with Russia, or the relations with China, are not really working to the interests of Turkey, politically or economically. There is a huge trade imbalance that is working against Turkey, both in Uh, its relations with Russia and with China. So I don't know if this can be, I mean, this Eurasianist dream can be sustained uh, in the long term. Yes, I mean, when people first wanted to understand the changing nature of Turkish-Russian relations or Turkish-Chinese relations, they immediately embraced this new concept called Eurasianism because they didn't know much about it. But if you just read into the history of Eurasianism, it is a special ideology that was created in Russia and only for Russia. It is actually a new wave uh, of Russian nationalism, and I'm not really sure whether Turkey would be embracing this. The Turkish nationalists always had significant concerns about uh, the imperialist designs of Russia or China in that regard. So its I don't really think it is easy to make the Turkish vision of becoming a leader in Eurasia compatible with the Russian or Chinese vision of becoming the new leaders of Eurasia or in the world. So it's really quite superficial in that regard, if there is some kind of an ideology behind all this.
0: I want to move on to China shortly. Just before mm-hmm. we move on from Russia, uh, there's an issue that I would like to address also, and it's a question of uh, it doesn't come up actually in the book, but um, it's a very interesting one I think, mm-hmm. and that is uh, Sputnik Türkiye, which is this Turkish language version of Sputnik, uh, which is of course the Russian state-run uh, radio station and website, mm-hmm. and in recent years in Turkey it's really built up quite a following, uh, particularly among the mm-hmm. Turkish opposition, mm-hmm. um, employing journalists who have been sort of forced out the mainstream and discussing a lot of things from a pretty sort of anti-Erdogan perspective, but. but. But recently, questions have started to be asked about it. Three of its prominent journalists were recently fired Mm -hmm. for uh, this interview that they did with uh, former Prime Minister Ahmed Davutoglu, uh, who's now sort of developing into this sort of anti erdogan figure himself. And, you know, these questions have started to emerge, you know, with Erdogan and Putin growing closer and both of whom, you know, having a lot of control over the media in both countries. There's this feeling now that uh, sputnik Turkey's editorial line will change. Mm -hmm. Just talk about the role of Sputnik in Turkey and, uh, you know, how you see things developing.
1: Well, it was quite interesting from day one. I mean, I was following Sputnik Turkey because, you know, I'm interested in Russian foreign policy and Russian politics. And for me, it was also quite interesting because the stance they took about Turkey has always been very critical. And it's not actually, this isn't something that started uh, a few weeks ago. I mean, it was there for years. But uh, up until recently, uh, it really didn't create a lot of, you know, discussion. And uh, maybe the Russian government also didn't really pay much attention to it. But uh, it's obviously their stance about Turkey was very critical uh, from uh, many many years ago, and uh, that might also, I mean, tell us something about the nature of the Turkish-Russian relations. I mean, just remember that Sputnik Turkey is definitely the Russian mouthpiece. I mean, of the state. So it was very interesting for me to see the news about uh, the Turkish government and etc. And especially if you just follow their stories during that sev- those seven months when uh, the Turkish-Russian relations were in a crisis because of the fighter jet issue, you would be surprised to see how. Uh, they were (laughs) anti-Turkey during that time period. So I think this is what I'm trying to say. It's like we are talking about this new era in Turkish-Russian relations. But on the other hand, we need to keep in mind that the Russian perception about Turkey has not always been positive. And it was mostly negative up until very recently. And I think they're also finding it quite hard to change that perspective. The Sputnik issue, I think, can only be understood within that framework. And of course, it's not a surprise to see what happens to these Journalists and the change in Sputnik Turkey nowadays, because uh, this all happens after Turkey bought the S-400 missiles, and it's also uh, enjoying very good relations with Russia and uh, with Putin. So obviously, Sputnik Turkey received some kind of an instruction from Moscow regarding the situation. And again, this also shows us that we need to be very careful about defining Russian-Turkish relations. Yes, they're on a good, in a, they're actually in a good course, but we need to be very careful because in a few years this might this may not be. Uh, the situation. And that's why I think it was very important for Turkey as a traditional foreign policy principle to keep a balance between Russia and the West. If you take a look at the Turkish foreign policy in general, since 1940s, you would immediately see that the balance to keep this balance, this, to maintain this balance has always been the most important priority of the Turkish leaders. So uh, I'm, I'm a little bit skeptical about uh, the future of Turkish-Russian relations because of that. And the Sputnik affair also, I think, is an indication of this.
0: So moving on to China, you know, it's another very interesting question, less of an immediate one, I suppose, uh, in Turkey. And of course, for years, really, relations between Ankara and Beijing have been dogged by this question of uh, the Uyghurs, there's this Muslim Turkish minority in Western China that's um, subject to extremely harsh repression. But there's also a lot of speculation now that Turkey is sort of maybe turning a blind eye to this situation and sort of trying to more directly develop relations with China, particularly from uh, with an eye on uh, economic investment. What about? these turkeys ties with China. I mean what's, what's your reading on, on them?
1: Well, I think, I mean, if you just take a look at Erdogan's own statements about the Uyghur issue, I think there was one example in 2009, if I'm not mistaken, where he actually called what China was doing to Uyghurs as a genocide. So uh, when you compare the situation today with 2009, there has been a lot of change and you can see that. And I think one reason for this is because um, Turkey, for some reason, believes it can really create a lot of economic opportunities for itself uh, due to China's... uh, Belt and Road Initiative that was declared in 2013. And after that, I think Turkey started to see this, together with its new rapprochement with Russia, definitely, as some kind of an alternative vision for uh, Turkey's uh, stalled EU process. I mean, when you speak about Turkey's relations with Europe, it's not only about politics, but also economy. And Turkey's main economic partners have always been in Europe, mainly Germany, for example. And I think the Chinese investment projects are attracting the Turkish leaders because they think this might, at least in case uh, the relations with the West enter a crisis, China might provide some kind of an alternative for Turkey's economic interests. But of course, we need to be very careful there again. I mean, I'm not sure if Turkey itself can challenge China if things don't go uh, as planned uh, in the economic side. We see a lot of, for example, African countries or countries in the Middle East uh, who are becoming enslaved by China economically. So that is uh, a major problem. But I think the reason why the Turkish government is... Is quite silent about the Uyghurs is due to this aspect. They don't want to antagonize China mainly because of China's, you know, economic importance for Turkey, and it might also create some kind of an uh, uh, opportunity for Turkey if things don't go as planned uh, with the European Union.
0: Sometimes strikes me that, you know, China works really for Turkey because it's almost hard to get angry about China. You know, there's no sort of built up resentment there because it's very distant, you know, both culturally and politically. So maybe it's harder for Turkey to feel emotionally like it's in a kind of big rivalry with China.
1: If you think about Turkey's pivot to Eurasia, since uh, it's more about Russia rather than China, because of what you said. I mean, China from time to time enters Turkey's foreign policy agenda, obviously, but it's not because it's uh, urgent. I mean, its economic potential is there. But apart from that, I don't really think China has ever created some kind of an alternative for Turkey, even if these Eurasianists are quite you know, excited about uh, China. I don't think for Turkey, this Eurasianist perspective of, more than anything. I mean, it doesn't really offer much uh, if you just put Russia aside.
0: Now, just to conclude, really, uh, moving back to Russia, really, I suppose. In your article in the book, you make the point that um, economic ties between Turkey and Russia can only really go so far, in a way. You know, Turkey still overwhelmingly does most of its business with Europe, Mm -hmm. and it has these big trade imbalances with uh, Russia and China. Mm -hmm. And uh, you say, quote, Due to these reasons, it seems that Eurasianism will continue to remain an emotionally attractive but politically and economically unrealistic option for Turkish policymakers in the near future. I mean, do you still think this, and more broadly, you know, What what about the future of ties? We talked about the S400 issue earlier, but how do you think Mm -hmm. things will develop in the sort of medium to long term?
1: Well, I mean, I think it's a good thing that Turkey has healthy relations with Russia. This was not the case uh, all the time. And Turkey and Russia had a lot of crisis in the past. But at the same time, I think we also need to be very careful about developing our relations with Russia because we are becoming too dependent on Russia. This is the main problem. And economically, the trade imbalance is working against Turkey. What we buy from Russia is mainly natural gas, but we, we can't stand anything. And Turkey needs to you know, keep its economic momentum. In order to keep that momentum, it needs not to lose the European dimension. I'm not talking about the EU membership and I don't think it's realistic for Turkey to expect a European Union membership anytime soon. But again, we need to remember that most of the trade is with the European countries. And on the other hand, when you take a look at the strategic relations with Russia, if you just pull out Syria, and even Syria, I mentioned before that there are a lot of problems, there is no single Middle East issue where Turkey and Russia agrees with each other. The same with Eastern Mediterranean Sea, which seems... Seems to be more important for Turkey. Russia's position there is quite different from uh, the Turkish side. They have very good relations with Cyprus, with Israel, with Greece. And I'm not sure if Turkey is actually talking, uh, thinking about this at the time when it uh, uh, speaks about Russia. Or let's take a look at Ukraine and Georgia, where these are two very good neighbors of Turkey, and Turkey's uh developing its military and strategic relations with these two countries. And of course, they also have significant problems with Russia in the Black Sea, in the Caucasus, in the Middle East, in India. East Mediterranean and we're talking about a strategic partnership now between these countries. If you just pull out the Syrian issue what do we have Yes for Turkey Russia is a very important country but Turkey is a NATO member. Turkey uh, is has very important uh, links with the Western countries so all this should be balanced. This is my main concern. I think the balance has tilted a bit too much towards Russia in the last few years. I don't think this really will create a lot of advantages for Turkish foreign policy in the short term.
0: That was Emre Erşen, many thanks to him. I've put up a link at armstrongwilliam.wordpress.com to the episode with Selim Koru that we mentioned in that conversation, published back in February this year. Don't forget to consider signing up as a Turkey Book Talk member if you enjoy the podcast and want to help support it. Membership gets you that special 35% discount on Turkey Ottoman history books published by IB Taurus and Bloomsbury. Transcripts in English and Turkish of every interview as it's published. Transcripts of the entire Turkey Book Talk archive of almost 100 conversations So far, and access to an archive of 231 book reviews written by me covering Turkish history, politics, literature and various other things To become a member and get all that all you have to do is pledge a minimum of $3 per episode via Turkey Book Talk's official Patreon account Also do please rate or review Turkey Book Talk on iTunes or whatever podcast platform you use Follow via Twitter or like the Facebook page and I always enjoy hearing from listeners so please send any recommendations, feedback or abuse to William John Armstrong at gmail.com but until the next episode of turkey book talk in a couple of weeks once again thank you very much for listening